This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, dear readers, and welcome to this uh, Edinburgh Book Festival event. Uh, the sponsor for this event uh, has chosen to remain anonymous, which Ooh. shows that you can sponsor things without admitting to anybody that you've got money. <laughs> so we're very grateful for that. Um, I am Val McDermott. I am a crime writer. And the reason for the authenticity of much of my forensic information is this woman sitting here on my left, Professor Dame Sue Black. Which means she earned a lot of money on my back. <laughs> All I'm going to say to you... Here we you, go, here we go. All <laughs> it always happens. You can't trust someone from Fife. They've always got an answer. All I'm going to say to you is the mortuary. <laughs> Anytime, <laughs> <This>. darling. <laughs> so, a little bit about Sue, um, which many of you know already. She was the Professor of Anatomy and Forensic Anthropology in Dundee for 13 years. She's now 15, that's okay. 15? <clears throat> So I'll be doing this again later in the year, you know. <laughs> and she's now the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Public Engagement at Lancaster Just University. Just engagement. Just engagement? Yeah. Not marriage? No. Okay, probably that'll come later. Afraid of commitment. So Sue was born in Inverness. She did her BSc in Anatomy at Aberdeen. She did her PhD on identification from the human skeleton. She was, she was the for Foreign and Commonwealth Office and United Nations uh, person. <laughs> Sorry, I can't even make would, sense would of Would you like me to do this? Ah, you do that, yes. <laughs> we have known each other so many years. So many years. It's like a marriage, you'd it really think, is. You'd think I'd be better at it by now, wouldn't you? Uh, no. Um, Sue represented the Foreign <laughs> Office and the United Nations um, IDing victims and the perpetrators of conflicts. Uh, 1999, she was in Kosovo where she was the lead uh, forensic anthropologist on the team there. She's worked in Sierra Leone and Grenada. Um, in 2003, she did two tours to Iraq. In 2005, she was involved in uh, the victim IDs in the uh, Thailand tsunami. In 2008, CAHID was set up in Dundee, the Centre for Human Identification. Uh, and that's where the UK National Disaster Victim ID training is done still. In 2014... Sue was the person who was called in to examine the photographs that came out of Syria, the thousands of photographs that were alleged to be of torture victims, and Sue had to examine these to decide whether or not they were indeed what they purported to be, which indeed they turned out to be. So, on a lighter note, uh, <laughs> she also made two series of History Cold Case, oh, which many oh. of you may have been glued to your television watching. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> How many, television is so false, and it would be, you know, we were in Baldock, I don't know if anybody's ever been in Baldock, and I don't even know where Baldock was, but we were there in January, and they said, can you walk across this field? Said, of course you can walk across the field. And we walked across the field 14 times, yeah. and you know that it's going to be a three second shot, and that's the point at which they said, can you look cross? <laughs> <laughs> I need to pay to act that one. Yes. And by Don't the, like television. By the fifth time, you've forgotten how to walk. Oh, completely. It's you find awful. yourself walking. It's dreadful. Face yeah. for radio. You lose it, yeah. 
Um, Sue's also a, a fellow of the Royal Society of Scotland, uh, a fellow of something else. <laughs> Royal, fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, fellow of the Royal Anthropological Institute, fellow of the, well, I'm a long, lifetime professor of anatomy at the Royal Academy in Scotland. And, and a fellow and of the, yeah. Others. Something else, various yeah. things, lots of fellows. You get old You've always enough. liked fellows, haven't you? I like you? fellows. I've always liked fellows. Um, you get old enough that these things just come in the post. <laughs> and also the Queen's Anniversary Award for Higher Education in 2013, which I think didn't come in the post as no, such. No, that, that was special. Um, yeah. It's the first time that either anatomy or forensic sciences had ever been recognised at that level by Her Majesty, and that was really important for Dundee. And also the Wolfson. Oh, yes. Thank you. And also the Wolfson Research Merit Award for your work on hand identification, which we will come back to later. In 2016, she became a Dame of the British Empire. And I have to say. No, sorry, no, 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 say, no, no. I have no. to say, there no. is nothing like this Dame. <laughs> if my father was alive, God bless him, he would have said, a Dame. It's what you get in a pantomime. And he would have been absolutely right. So we're here today, really, um, because you've finally written the book you said you were never going to write. (laughs) Yes. uh, Sue's book, All That Remains, has been published, and it is essentially a meditation on death. It's a cheery subject. It's a cheery subject. But it is in your hands. Um, You know, it's now, you know, all these years you said you were never going to write a book, so I just stole your life. Yes. Now I am redundant because you've yes. done it yourself. Yeah. And it was one of the first things you said to me when I wrote the book. You said you'd never write one. Yes. Yes, I know. <laughs> and every time Thank we've you. met since, it's how you open the conversation. Yes. That book you said you were never going to write. Yes. So, it's a very good book, by the way. <laughs> it's a very, very good book. Um, in, in the book, you introduce death as the way that we think of death, the grim reaper, the great leveller, the dark angel, the pale rider. And then you soften it immediately by referring to death as she. What made you choose to do that? She's always been she. So my grandmother grew up in a little place called Glen Elg. If you know Glen Elg, it is literally in the middle of the middle of nowhere. And she grew up there, she was born there and grew up there in the late 1800s. And as classic West Coasters, because she was a very classic West Coaster, um, she believed in a life beyond this one. She believed in spirituality. She believed in the whole ghosts and sixth sense and all those sorts of things. She was a wonderfully superstitious person. And for her, she always felt that death was a friend, somebody who always walked with you from the moment you're born. It was someone who was always with you. And if your companion is always going to be with you, then you need to make them a friend. But for her being a woman in Glenelg in the 1800s, it would have been totally inappropriate for her to have a friend who was a man. And so therefore for her, death had to be a woman. And she always from that point forward referred to her, to she. And so for me, it was always going to be the same. Death was always going to be a woman because my grandmother told me it was. I slightly worry at your notion of, of death walking alongside mm. us and, and those, that, those that we love walking alongside us and beyond us, because you're never going to leave me alone, are you? No, no, <laughs> and it never does. That's, that's the really important thing, is that you know, many of us are, are five seconds away from death at any point and we just don't know it. If, if that person's going, you know, if that thing's going to happen, you may as well get to know your companion. You may as well. 
Now, you, you chose a career in forensic anthropology, which is really, uh, I think, something that people are often confused about. They don't entirely understand it. It reconstructs the life journey. So yes. the, big, the big challenge is often what's the difference between forensic anthropology and forensic pathology. Once you get past the fact that the answer is about £100,000 a year in salary difference, um, it's about the fact that the pathologist is interested in the cause of death and the manner of death. They're really interested in that death process. Whereas forensic anthropology is about identity. Who was that person? And to be able to get back to the information about who that person was, then you need to understand their life. So we're about reconstructing the life to identify the person in death, whereas the pathologist is interested in how did that person die, what was the cause of death. And I realise poor Linda on my right is doing the most tremendous job <laughs> trying to keep up with us, and I will slow down Linda if I can. <laughs> so in essence, so talented. <laughs> in essence, although it appears on the face of it that your, your, your professional life was to do with death, you were actually looking at the identity, so you were always looking at the life. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Everything about you. I mean, if you, if you die as a baby, then there are very few features about you that make it easy to identify you because you need to live in your skin. You need to abuse your body. It needs to grow in its own way and, and reflect its own difficulties and also advantages. And our job is to be able to get under the skin and to be able to look at what there is within your body that tells us something about you. And then we will go to sources of information that knew you when you were alive to say, could this be this individual? So for example, we had a, a fatal house fire um, in Fife and it was a little old lady who lived miles away from anywhere. The building just went up just, just like a, a, a torch, it really did. And so she was never going to survive, bless her. And when we got to the building, um, we had something like three feet of rubble that we had to go down because the roof had collapsed and we were looking for what remained of her body. And we found tiny fragments of ash that we knew were representative of a body. But you're never going to get DNA out of there. And we need to confirm that the person who's in the fire is the person who should be. <clears throat> and what we did find was one of her collarbones were intact and it was misshapen because it had fractured and we had the clinical records that said she'd fractured her right, her right collarbone. So for the procurator fiscal, we couldn't look at DNA, we couldn't look at fingerprints, there wasn't enough left of her to do that. But the very fact that she had broken this bone and we had the clinical information about it was sufficient for him to say, yes, it probably is her. And we recovered enough that it didn't even fill a shoebox. It's extraordinary that focus on the detail, but where did it begin for you? What was the start of the road that led you to examining tiny fragments of collarbones in a cottage in Fife? Fife. Um, it was Fife. It um, was Fife. My father, my maiden name was Gunn. And my father, I kid you not, was a terrific shot. And he used to go out hunting. So he'd come back with rabbits and pigeons and deer if he could get away with it. And my mother would never have anything to do with it. So it was my job from a very early age. To, to gut it and to skin it. And so I had no trouble at all working with animal carcasses. And when I was 12, my father said to me, what are you going to do for a job? And I thought he meant when I was grown up. He meant when I was 12. And his rationale was, you can now work, you need to get a job, and you need to give your mother half of what you earn for board and lodging. 
And that was expected of me. And what he did at that point was he instilled, I think, a, a, a tremendous work ethic. Because I knew I couldn't bunk off work. Because if I did that, I wouldn't have the money to give my mother. And I was convinced my mother desperately needed that three pounds a week, which was my half of what I earned. And so my first job was in a vegetable shop on a farm. And I really hated it because it's cold and it's dirty and it's carrots and it's potatoes and things. And within about two weeks, I'd See, said... See, then you're showing the typical Scottish regard for oh, vegetables. absolutely. <laughs> none, none of the green stuff. God, no. And I looked across the, the courtyard and there was the butcher shop and I thought, I want to work in there. And so from the age of 13 until I was 17 and went to university, I worked in the butcher shop, which was the next obvious direction after doing all the sort of gutting and skinning for my father. When I went to university, I wasn't very good at anything. And by the time we got to third year, you had to choose what you were going to study. And it was going to be either anatomy or botany. And I thought I would do a very, very, a very grown-up decision. I would go and speak with the academics and decide where my future lay. And I went to the botanist first, and God bless him, but he was the most boring man on the planet. And I made my decision that I was never going to be a botanist just because he was boring. And so I went into the anatomy department. And the anatomy department wasn't that big a step from the butcher shop. Mm -hmm. And the butcher shop hadn't been that big a step from gutting and skinning animals. So I don't think I ever chose it. I think I'm just so inherently lazy that when something came across that looked like an easy move, that's what I did. And that's how I ended up in anatomy. And I loved it. So you, you were given a cadaver... And you dissected from the top of the head to the bottom of the toe, and it took a full year to do that. And at the first stage, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. But within about 15 minutes, you've forgotten to be scared. And the absolute wonders that lie underneath the skin is just incredible. And you never, ever lose that level of respect and wonder at just how this whole mass of cells work together pretty well most of the time Mm -hmm. to create living, breathing people. So anatomy was just, that was where I belonged. I can understand that uh, because you've shown me over the years many things, (laughs) some of them repeatable. (laughs) But um, we went into your specimen room one time and and these are preserved specimens. They're not in a jar of formalin. They've been been plasticised, I suppose you'd you'd say. And I've held somebody's heart in my hands and that was an extraordinarily moving moment. But also, there are, there are things mounted on cars, different parts of your body. And the, the intestines, our intestines, look like jewellery. The colours are extraordinary. They're beautiful things. And we never think of the inside of our bodies as a beautiful place. But if you look at some of the, the really well-known art, you look at some of da Vinci's mm-hmm. drawings, then the sheer artistry within anatomy, I think, just screams... And, you know, we, we've been very lucky over the years to have a number of artists come into our dissecting room. Ken Curry came into our dissecting yeah. room, and he was a little bit nervous about it, but once he forgot to be afraid, which was a bit like yourself, because you were, you were a little bit nervous, but I reckon oh. it didn't last more than five or ten minutes, yeah. and you'd forgotten to be afraid. And that's what happens yeah. around the dead, is that the living make them scary. The dead themselves... The, the dead have never, ever scared me or freaked me out. Yeah. The living are terrifying. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right, darling. I won't yeah. hurt you. I also believe, you, you told me this, this many years ago, that uh, working in the butcher shop taught you one very valuable lesson. 
not to bite your nails. It, tell, it, 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 it does a number of things so that uh, you never bite your nails because and certainly if you've been in a dissecting room um, because when we dissected there were no gloves, we didn't wear gloves yeah. and so you learnt never ever to bite your fingernails um, and the butcher shop taught me how to make cups of tea for workmen that always works. Um, it taught me never to place a knife down on an edge with the blade facing upwards. All sorts of important life skills. Mm-hmm. I can link sausages. <laughs> that's that's, that's, a, that's the same thing that comes in handy. It's a life skill. I mean, imagine you'll be doing that a lot in mm-hmm. Lancaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, apart from not having gloves and, and, and now having a much more hygienic environment, how have things changed in the dissecting room? Um... I think the dissecting room for a very, very long time didn't change. Um, We used a a method of embalming that was called formalin, and it's a really nasty kind of Mm -hmm. substance. It's slightly carcinogenic. Um, It makes your eyes water. You can smell it. You can taste it. It's it's not pleasant. The bodies go very stiff, and they go very sort of brown. And what we used to do... It always reminded me of of a cross between a three-day-old turkey and a Barbie doll. Close. What, what we tend, anatomists tend to liken things to food. So you're absolutely right. When we used to get, um, we used to do a lot of teaching in London with um, ambulance paramedics. And so what we would do is the whole time that we were going through with them in the dissecting room, we'd talk about how it looked like tuna fish, how it looked like tin tuna, knowing full well that every time we had the ambulance drivers in our premises, we had arranged that night that when they got home... <laughs> that it was going to be tuna salad. And, and we could figure... They would tell us how many didn't eat that night. <laughs> so it, does, you know, it did look like tuna, but it was very, it was very mm-hmm. stiff, it was very unwieldy. And for us, that wasn't good enough. So we decided we wanted to change the way in which we embalmed human bodies. We wanted to make the bodies flexible. We wanted to make sure they could last for the, the full three years that, that the, the government allows us, that the law allows us to keep them. And we wanted them to look more realistic in terms of colour. So I sent two of my staff over to Graz in Austria. And there they met uh, the most amazing people who had been working on how to create what we call soft fix. And it had all come from the food industry. It had come from a butcher who was preserving hams. And he wanted the texture and he wanted it, the colour. And so we brought that back and we had a go at it in Dundee to see if we could embalm using this teal method. And at that point, we persuaded the University of Dundee that we should change the entire way in which we embalm. And they agreed. Only then, once they'd agreed, did I inform them that we'd have to build a new mortuary. (laughs) Do it the right way. And Mm -hmm. at that point, they said, it'll take about £2 million to build a new mortuary. And the university said, we'll give you half of it. You need to go raise the other half. How do you raise a million pounds? You can't rattle a bucket at Tesco's. Nobody's going to give you. So somebody said to me, go, go and write a list of all the people who have used and abused you throughout your entire career and go and speak to them. And so I did. I went to, I went to Val and said, we, we've got this really bonkers idea that what we want to do is to use the crime writers because they have such incredibly loyal supporters mm-hmm. that, you know, if, if you're Chris Hoy, then you want a velodrome named after you. Who would want a mortuary named after them? <laughs> crime writers. So Val went away and got nine of her, her, her close friends who very, very graciously 
loaned us their names and we went out shamelessly raising money on behalf of this new mortuary. And the campaign was called Million for a Morgue. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the deal was that the, the, the sort of central spearhead of the, the campaign was, was that uh, readers such as yourselves could look at this list of ten writers and vote for the one that they liked best. And you could vote as many times as you wanted, but every time you voted it cost you a pound. That's right. Um, and the person who garnered the most votes uh, through this system would have the mortuary named after them. Uh, we also did other things. Uh, we auctioned character names in books. Uh, uh, Carol Ramsey created the Killer Cookbook. Okay. Which we there should donated. never be a cookbook coming out of an anatomy department, by the way. <laughs> never. But it was shortlisted for an award. It was indeed. In it was indeed. And eventually the money was raised. It was. Uh, and uh, hence we have in Dundee the Val McDermott Mortuary. We do. <laughs> she was never going to let anyone else win. Never. Never, ever. And. Uh, the runner-up was Stuart McBride, who has the dissecting room named he after does. them. Stuart, he, Stuart wrote a book for us called The Wholesome Adventures of Skeleton Bob, which was a children's book. And uh, it came out just in time for Christmas yes. and allowed us to be able to, to do that. And we thought we need to recognise that as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but all, and all the writers who participated um, have an embalming <laughs> tank named after them. <laughs> So there's this room full of embalming tanks with, with the names of all the participating authors, except for Lee Child, because we didn't think it was very tasteful to have the child embalming tank. <laughs> so Lee's tank is called the Jack, Jack Reacher, Reacher tank. tank. That's right. <laughs> so it, 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 it's, it's quite interesting, because I've, I've been in, in the mortuary a couple of times when we've been showing people round, and they come in and they see all these tanks with crime writers' names on, and, and, and they sort of... They do I didn't know she was dead! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not yet. Good, Give yes. us time. We did that yes. for, for our, our last Cox professor of anatomy, Roger Soames. So when, when an anatomist retires, what you give them is a leaving present. So we gave him his own embalming tank. And the number of people who come in and say, oh, I didn't know Roger had died. <laughs> he hasn't yet, but one day he will. And, and we always said that the anatomy department is probably one of the greenest departments in the entire university. Because people work there, they retire they donate their body, and they come back. So we recycle our members of staff. And, and you don't have to pay them when they you come back. You don't pay them, no. <laughs> so all of this leads you to refining the quest for ID, yeah. which you then take into the field and apply in some of the, the most difficult ways and difficult places after natural disasters. But I'm thinking particularly of your involvement with war crimes uh, investigations. That must be the most harrowing element of your work. Um, th there are a number of, of aspects to it. There is the fact that you're, you're out of the country, so you're in a foreign environment. When we first moved into Kosovo, we were the first team to enter Kosovo, so we still had snipers in the hillside. Um, we still had a, um, improvised explosive devices laid for us at some of the areas in, in which we were working. So we had real security issues as well. Um, the families were starting to come back, so you were having to deal with, with families and family grief. And at the same time, you were dealing with the International Criminal Court, who needed you to be able to recover the evidence to the level and standard that you would if you were at home, because it was going to be cross-examined within the courts in The Hague. So you, you had a lot of, of balancing pressures to do, and you were generally out there for six to eight weeks at a time on a rotation. Everything about it was, was totally alien. And the people that, that come onto your team are often people that you wouldn't choose to live with normally, but you have to. And so it's a bit like Big Brother. 
in terms of, you know, Big Brother Goes Balkan, we used to say. And it's about, a bit like having to find a way to live with people that you wouldn't normally be comfortable with because you're all in the same difficult situation. And those people you make a lifelong connection with. So I know if I haven't seen somebody since 2000, yeah, 18 years ago, I know that if they were in Kosovo with us, then that team is exactly the same and you know that you won't have felt any time has passed because mm -hmm. you experience things that nobody else can understand. When at the end of the last tour in Kosovo, um, the Metropolitan Police, in their infinite wisdom, decided that they would send some councillors out to us. And we'd gone feral by this point. So the prospect of the councillors, God bless them, having any impact on us was, was unlikely. And it would have been better if they'd done that at the beginning rather than at the end. Yeah. So that, you know, we were there having at that point done eight weeks of the most unimaginable things. And for someone to come along and ask you, how do you feel? <laughs> so the way that you handle it is that we all had to sit in a circle. I wish I was kidding. It was so painful. We all had to sit in a circle and we all had to have name badges. We knew who we were. Yeah? The councillors didn't know who we were. So one of our crew decided it was time to get his own back on one of the other crew members. And this particular um, technician had bought a Barbie pink plastic alarm clock in the shape of a mosque. And instead of an alarm, it went off with the imam singing. And he'd hidden it under the officer's bed to go off at full volume at 3 o'clock every morning. So there was this instant relationship between them. And payback came on the day that we had the counsellors, because we all had to have our little name bags, badges. And the, the technician was called Steve, but his name badge said Alf. And Alf stands, apologies, don't think there's any children, stands for annoying little fucker. Okay? <laughs> and so, as a result, every time the counsellor said, Alf, how do you feel? There was no <laughs> way he was ever going to contain the room. And it's, it's the thing that I think I learned then, that, you know, around death, it's okay to laugh. As long as you're not laughing at the person, you're not laughing at the families or the situations. Mm -hmm. But some of the funniest places I've been in my life are in mortuaries. And death allows you to do that. She allows you to laugh. You get permission. When my mother died, my mother was, was six weeks from, from living to death. And we went up to visit her, um, in her in her hospital room on the last Saturday that we saw her alive as myself and my two, two young daughters. And you're sitting there thinking, what do you do? You know, do, do you cry? What, what do you do? And we decided that what we would do is we would be the Von Trapp family. And we would sing. And we sang every song that we could think of, from Disney through to the White Cliffs of Dover to You can Shove Your Granny Off a Bus, which was probably a little bit inappropriate on a deathbed. <laughs> but every time a nurse opened the door, or a doctor opened the door, we were falling about, absolutely laughing. And I thought, you know, if ever you're, when, when your time comes and you're leaving this world, wouldn't it be wonderful to hear the people you cared about laughing, singing, joking, not crying, not in misery, but actually in, in a real sort of joyous moment. And we hadn't thought about it. To us, it just became second nature. Yeah. But I did one of these events um, not that long ago, and a young man came up to me and he said, I can only thank you. So I've lived with the real regret. He said, I've, I've lived with the fact that on my mother's deathbed, somebody said something and I laughed and I felt guilty. And he said, I don't anymore. 
And I think that's the most important thing about death, is she's incredibly forgiving, and she's incredibly funny. <laughs> but just going back a little bit there to what you were talking about, the camaraderie yeah. that builds up when you do these extremely difficult things in often extremely dangerous situations. I know from what you've told me that uh, one of the relationships, one of the friendships that you made on, on that time in the Balkans and beyond um, was something that has led you into an extraordinary new field of human identification that has led to some major criminal prosecutions already. Um, Nick Marsh was the, uh, the senior photographer for the Metropolitan Police and when Nick used, would met, meet people he would say do you know Sue? He said yeah I know Sue I slept with Sue. What he meant was he always used to miss the fact there were 16 other people in the dormitory <laughs> at the same time but that was Nick's opening and there was a case came into Nick um, in the Met which was a young girl, a young teenage girl and she alleged that her father would come into her room at night and abuse her and she told her mother, and her mother refused to believe her. And she was an incredibly brave young girl. What she did was she put on her Skype camera at night. And I don't know if you know, but if you run your Skype camera at night, it flicks into infrared mode, so you can see in the dark. And when infrared light shines onto human skin, it reacts differently. I'm waiting to see what the word is for deoxygenated blood. Yes! <laughs> She's good. <laughs> so when, when infrared light sees um, the blood in your veins, it stands out like black tram lines. So at half past four in the morning, on her Skype camera, we could see a hand and a forearm coming into the, the, the field of view. And Nick got in touch with me and said, we've got this video, but we have no idea what to do with it. And we said, neither do we, but we'll have a look. But what we know from anatomy is that veins are variable. And if you doubt me, when, when it goes outside and it's a bit brighter, look at the vein patterns on the back of your left hand and compare it with the vein patterns on the back of your right hand. And I guarantee on Val McDermott's life that they will be different. <laughs> Because I've never yet come across two hands that are the same. And that's because those veins form when you're a fetus inside your mum. And the pattern is yours. We've not found anybody else's. Even identical twins, we've not found similarities. And so what we were able to do was we were able to take this vein pattern that we could see and compare it with Dad. And everything we found matched. So we went to court. And in court, the judge went, well, we've not had this kind of evidence before. Throw the jury out. We need a voir dire. And the judge decided that based on anatomical information, which we've had since Vesalius in the 1500s, we knew about vein variation. So we were allowed to give evidence, which is the first time that this kind of evidence was ever given in court. The jury, in their infinite wisdom, came back and found father not guilty. And I have no idea then who else it was in his daughter's room at half past four in the morning with the same vein pattern as him. And so we went to our barrister and we said to her, what did we do wrong? D did we miss something? And she said something to me that has stayed with me and will stay to me, you know, to my dying day. She said, no, I said, I think you were fine. I think the science was fine. I don't think believe they believed the girl. She didn't cry enough. She didn't break down. So this amazing young girl who was so brave, who had taken that camera view off allegedly her father, had gone all the way to court with it, had now been told that she wasn't believed. He would have been released back into the family home. I have no idea 
what would have happened to that girl, I can imagine. But if nothing else, she set a legacy at that point. And maybe somewhere in the future, God willing, if she's still alive, then she'll know that this was her legacy, that that, that case was not wasted. At that but, point, we started the research. And that says, that says something about the woman you are, that you didn't just go away and, and weep into your gin and, and say, oh, well, that's that then, that you've used that as a spur well, we to develop that, that hand identification and you're about to move that into the next phase. We are. Well, we felt that there was something there. There was something yeah. that needed to be done. So it just so happens we had 550 police officers in Dundee that we were training for disaster victim identification. So we asked them if they were all prepared to strip to their underwear um, so that we can photograph most of their body parts um, with visible light and infrared light so that we could start to do the research. And then we got some research grants and we published the papers and, and we've done everything else. Up until and currently, to the current stage, we do between 50 and 60 cases a year. So it's about one a week, which is a tip of the iceberg for what the police have. And of that, we've now secured, I think it's 20, 28 life sentences and over 300 years of incarceration for people who, who carry out this most heinous act on what mm -hmm. are our most vulnerable members of our society. So that's, that's her legacy, which I think is extremely yeah. important. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And the value of that is that it's a crime that's, that's very difficult to prove because it's generally one person's word against another. And when paedophiles um, take photographs of themselves abusing children, they've, got, they've become smart enough in terms of, social, of, of the, uh, digital media yeah. to disguise their faces or yes. not have their faces in. And they never think twice about their, their, their hands, hands, their arms. Or their or other body parts. Other body parts which you're now developing systems well, for? Well, we, we, we had a really good idea for a database of penises uh, because you need to have those. And it involved the Marines. I love my job. I really, I love my job. And the, the local Marines at 45 Commando in Arbroath, God, God bless the senior officer. He said, you know, we need to, if we're going to have a database, we need to have the body part in different conditions. Okay. And he said, okay, he said, I know why you're doing this and I understand why you need that research database. And I would never ask my men to do something I wouldn't do myself. <laughs> I love him. And the medical officer will take the photographs. I thought, damn, okay. But, you know, you can't have everything. And then the absolute killer on it was he said, I'll just go and check with the military office. And I thought, oh, that's it, dead, because they won't allow it. And at that point, they went, no, it's not <laughs> happening. So we didn't get our database from the Marines. But there is a website. There is a website called www.showyourdick.com <laughs> where men, God bless them, will go on and photograph, and they photograph of themselves in various stages. And that provided the most tremendous database mm -hmm. because we now know what percentage of men veer to the left, or veer to the right, or veer upwards, or downwards, and what sorts of variation they have within the anatomy. There's always a way to get an answer. <laughs> and the site's still up and running, isn't it? I believe so. Yes. So, <laughs> Last so, time I looked. So, so, gentlemen, if you want to further medical research and criminal research, you know where to go. It's, it, it's, and in all good, seriousness, seriously. it was extremely important. And yes. I had a, a postdoc student doing nothing but researching penile variation. And she couldn't tell her mother what it was she did. <laughs> so she lied about her project. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
I'm doing a Dickensian project, yes. mother. Yeah, that's right. So we've talked, we've talked quite a lot about the, about the public side of your work and, the, and the, the societal impact of your work. But this is a very personal book as well. This book talks in, in I think, very moving ways about your own relationship to death, about your family members, uh, how, you've, how you've coped with this and how you've approached this, uh, the, the, the idea of death, and how you think about your own death. I'm intrigued that you, you decided to incorporate that because this would have been an absolutely riveting book had you just written about your professional life. But you have chosen to, to be very open about death and what, what, it, what it signifies to you and how you yourself feel about facing that inevitable visitor. I've, I think I've become more and more comfortable with the many faces of death as I've got older. And, you know, as, as we would say up north towards Stonehaven, it's got mere faces in the Burvey clock, which it does. And I wanted to be able to show those different faces of death. And it would have been disingenuous of me if I had a book about death that didn't include something that was personal. And when, when I chose to write it, it was mainly because somebody had said to me, what's the book you'd most like to read after a Val McDermott novel? And I said... She doesn't read them. And I said... She just pretends. And I said, I'd love to read the book that my grandmother never wrote. I'd love to read about what her life had been like in Glenelg in the 1800s. And I thought about... I wanted to leave something that were my stories and my words for my children, for my grandchildren, for the generations that I don't yet know. And I wanted them to know how I felt when their grandparents died or their great-grandparents. And I wanted them to know that it was okay to be sad. It was okay to be hurt. It was okay to feel you could have done things better. It was okay to find it funny and laugh. And the only way to do that, I think, apart from speaking to them as I do now, but for the generations that will be beyond when I'm here, is to allow them to read it. And what I hadn't thought about, and that's my naivety, after I'd written it, is I get an audio book as well. And so they can actually hear it in my own words. So I wrote it for them. I really didn't write it for anybody else. And it was about letting them know the normality of what death is. That it does hurt, but it is funny. And sometimes it's a huge release and a huge blessing. And sometimes it's very gentle and sometimes it's very cruel. But it comes in many guises. And I think you've done us all a tremendous favour by sharing those ideas and those, those experiences with us. Um, I certainly learned a lot from this book and it wasn't all about the technical stuff either. And damn, it wasn't all stuff that I can use in a book. <laughs> there is that problem. She phones you up, okay? And she's all nicey. How are you? Haven't seen you. And you know she's on a fishing expedition. And it will be... It, yeah, don't You're you my dare. friend. I don't love you. you. It will be, what are you working on? Any interesting cases? And before you know it, my science has got into her novel before it's got into any of my scientific journals. She's, she's a magpie, so she is. Well, you've, you know, you've got to stay ahead of the game somehow, <laughs> you know. So one, one last question before we open up to some questions from the room. Um, You've stepped away from the frontline practice of forensic anthropology for the time being, at least. Um, are there cases that haunt you? Are there things that you still wake up in the small hours and think, I wish I had the answer to that? Usually they arise with people where you have bodies 
but you can't figure out who they are. Um, so, for example, I talk about the man from Balmore because I don't know what his name was. He's just the man from Balmore. He's a young man. We find his body hanging in the woodlands, very badly decomposed, the point that the, the children who found him thought it was a, a Halloween guy, and, in fact, he was just very, very badly decomposed. And that's a young man, and somewhere, surely, that young man's got family that, is miss, that are missing him. And so I hate those, those situations where you have a body but you're not able to let them go home because you can't find their name. But by the same token, those incomplete circles where you know somebody's missing and you can't find the body. So we spent a lot of time trying to find Rena McRae and her son Andrew who went missing in Inverness in 1977. We spent a lot of time (coughs) trying to find the remains of little Moira Anderson who went missing in Cote Bridge in the 1950s. Not finding these bodies whilst there's still family alive is really challenging because they talk about when that person went missing, that their life went into a stutter. And although their life goes on, it's always anchored back to that point when that person went missing. And I had a, a lovely letter from Rena McRae's sister saying that every time somebody digs to find where Rene might be, that she gets her hopes up again. And then when we don't find her, she feels the same depression. So we don't, we don't ever lose the sight of the fact in our profession that there are living, breathing family waiting for that knock on the door that brings the bad news home, but it's a kind news as well as a bad news. It's that certainty now of knowing what's happened. And all Rena McRae's sister had said is, all I want to do is bring my sister home. I want to know where she is. I want her in the ground. I want to be able to visit her. And it's the same for Moira Anderson's family. So much of our work is for the courts, and it is about justice, but it's equally about those family members who are left behind trying to cope and understand with the situation that they're faced with. Thank you. So... It's time now for us to let well, this the, is the bad bit. get at us. Say, the, the public are really strange. <laughs> I've, to, to give you an idea, I found myself giving evidence in Livingston, in a court in Livingston, and I had to stay in a hotel. And oh as no. I was checking That's always in, a problem in Livingston. As I, as I was checking in, I do hope this lady's not in the audience, but as I was checking in, there was a woman in front of me in the queue, and we'd just done the eighth episode of History Cold Case. And she turned around to me and she went... I know you from somewhere. I thought, God, is, is this what Angelina Jolie has to go through? You know? <laughs> and uh, she said, I know, she said, you work in Matalan. <laughs> and so, in the spirit of it, I said, yes, I do. I work in the big pants section. <laughs> and I had a 15-minute conversation with that poor woman about outsized women's lingerie. And somewhere along the line, she's going to see me and go, God, she's done well for herself. So <laughs> Public are strange. Yeah. yeah. So um, if anyone's willing to run the gauntlet <laughs> of being considered strange, uh, stick your hand up. Yes, there's a lady in the front here. Uh, and then somebody over there. Did you get the I mic to judge one over there? I Sorry, so I'll wait to my neighbours. <laughs> hi, Pam. Hi, David. <laughs> Okay. I don't know why this question occurred to me. When you're given a body in, in the lab, do you talk to it? So when I'm given a body in the lab, do I talk to it? And the answer is yes. So one of the things you will find in an anatomy department is that we get 
people, people bequeath their bodies to you and the families hand over that body to you and your job is to look after that person for the length of time that they're in your possession. So that you, quite often we find ourselves, we'll, we'll pat a shoulder or you rub a hand and you know, we'll talk about what we're finding, what we're seeing. And when we're in a mortuary situation, we're often talking aloud about what it is that we're looking at. What am I looking for? What can't I see? What is it that I'm hiding? But you learn very quickly if you've got police in the room to try and say nothing. Because the police in the room will pick up every single word you say. And if you say, oh, I think, I think the remains I've got are female, suddenly it's a woman. And they don't allow you to backtrack on what your original first theory was. So police actually make us say less. When the police aren't in the room, then yes, we do talk. Because just because you are now a body doesn't mean that you're not a person. And it, it's really important. And of course, what you like best is that they can't answer back. When they do, I'll be the first one out of there. The first one out of there. Gentleman over there. Is there any more questions? Can I? Yes, somebody in here. Where am I? Yeah. Gentleman over here. Okay. Can I ask a question about what it takes to become an anatomist or a forensic anthropologist? Um, about half a century ago, as part of my medical training, I had to do an intercalated BSc, and most of us chose to be anatomists for a year. Uh, mainly because nothing to do with the research opportunities, but because the anatomists seem to be the jolliest, most devil-may-care group in the, uh, in the pre-clinical departments. Do our anatomists and anthropologists made by their experience, or are you self-selecting, do you think? Uh, probably a little bit of both. So um, one of the, the kookiest places in a university is an anatomy department. They're all eccentrics, every single one of them. And I think it, it's partly because you face death every single day. So you decide what's important in life and what isn't. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of camaraderie in a dissecting room. Clinicians, please excuse me, often take themselves very seriously. And anatomists never do. Um, and certainly when we're in the forensic field, that having fun is an extremely important coping mechanism. And so I think a lot of universities find anatomy departments challenging because they don't always behave the way that they should. And we do what we think is right rather than what often we're being asked to do. So I think your assessment of, of what it takes is a healthy disregard for the rules. Except the rules of respecting the, the ah, people that, you're that's, dealing with. That's, that's where never. You are completely... Um, with total integrity. Because it's not person, like doctor in the house. No, absolutely not. We will make fun of each other, mm -hmm. but we will never make fun of the body in front of us. We'll never make fun of the grief that a family yeah. is, in fact. But, but sometimes you need to cope. So we had a, a young radiographer um, came over to Kosovo, and he was very, very nervous about it. And we had a really old, experienced radiographer who was going to teach him. And so what we did is we got a body bag, and we filled it full of all sorts of rubbish, and you put a bullet in it. And the job for the radiographer is to, using fluoroscopy, find the bullet, open the bag, go in, and pull the bullet out. So he's very nervous because we're all standing watching him. And he comes down with the fluoroscope, finds the bullet, opens the bag, rummages around, can't find the bullet. We go, it's okay, just do it again. So he scans again, comes down, the bullet's there, opens the bag, can't find the bullet. By this point, he's sweating. And of course, we're saying, uh, really? 
What he didn't know was that we taped the bullet under the table because I was never, ever going to find it. And that's the kind of thing that, that you do. Mm-hmm. That's, that's anatomists for you. It's that gentle warmth of camera. They got their own back on me because on one of the sites, um, the bomb disposal, disposal squad had said to me, if you see anything that worries... I don't know what a bomb looks like. And they said, if you see anything that worries you, just stand up and call it. And so I was on my hands and knees going through some remains in an outhouse and I saw something shiny. I thought, I don't know what it is, so I called it, I stood up. And they put on all the gear, they went in, full bomb squad. They were in there for about 40 minutes and they came out, face completely grave. And he took off all his kit and he came up and he just in my ear and he said, little lady, you will never know just how lucky you are to be alive. It was a soup spoon. (laughs) When I got home that night, I had 40 soup spoons in my bed. Every time I opened my bag, there were soup spoons. Every time dinner came, it had soup spoons. I became the cutlery queen of Kosovo. You give it, you've got to take it. Uh, There's somebody over here who's got a mic. Yes. Um, First of all, I just wanted to say that I live near Baldock, so I do sympathise. But, uh, January in Baldock <laughs> frees the Baldocks off you, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, my, my question relates to the MOOC that you ran a few years ago. I was at a, a talk here and after that went to participate in that and it was absolutely incredible. And I just wondered if you knew how many people in the world did do that and whether it increased the interest in forensics. So a MOOC is a massive open online course, which is something that you put on in terms of teaching um, and anybody in the public can join it. And we decided that because it was Dundee, we'd, we'd host a murder. And we had a murder up on the Law Hill. And unfortunately for us, there had actually been a body go missing on the Law Hill several years before. So, of course, whilst we were up there with pretend policemen and pretend white suits and everything, the, the press were starting to identify that our body's been found. That wasn't. It was a plastic skeleton. Um, and so we ran a, a dismemberment um, program on how to identify this individual. And Val wrote the book that, that went with it, the story that went with it. And um, we now know that we had in excess of 28,000 people around the world took part in the MOOC. And we had somebody on every single continent, including somebody at the Antarctic Polar Station. So I think it was the first time a MOOC had literally gone on to every single continent. But we had so much fun with it. It was great to put it together. Yes, it was. But you, you, you guys were tremendous. You were like on, on the on, online so much of the time, yeah. talking to people, interacting with them, answering their queries. I thought that was the extraordinary part of it as well. About. It was great. It was yeah. a great piece of engagement. There's a gentleman over here. Hello. As part of your leisure activities, do you watch TV or read books by people other than Val McDermott? Um, she doesn't or even those that are by Val McDermott, that deal with forensic by now. And do you think to yourself, this is rubbish, or, or this is really, really good stuff? So, um, somebody asked me at, at something similar to this, which was my favourite Ian Rankin book. And I said his next one. Um, because I don't read crime fiction. Um, I very rarely watch crime fiction. Um, most of it is, is limited quality, but what I, what I do and have always genuinely said that I have a huge amount of respect for those crime writers who do the research, and there are a good handful of those who take it very seriously. And for me, that's about a crime writer, and Val does that exceptionally. 
is that she shows that she respects her readers. She wants it to be as realistic as possible. She doesn't want to just make it up. And so her research is really, really intensive. In one of the books that she wrote called Something to Do with Something. <laughs> um, that narrows it down. With the hyoid. Which one had the hyoid? Oh, I can't remember now. See? You told me that there was a bodies in a car, cars were burnt, oh, it, and it, the individual it, had it, been strangled. Insidious intent. Insidious intent. See that one. And Val wanted to know what's it like to strangle somebody to death. So she came into my department to see what the hyoid bone looks like and what it feels like. So she had this moment of feeling the spring on the hyoid bone and then snapped it so that she knows exactly what it feels like to break and fracture somebody's hyoid. And that, to me, is, is credit to those crime writers who take the respect very, very seriously. Some don't, but there are some that do. And, and, and I should remind you that uh, recently I got this irate e email on a Sunday evening from Sue, who was in a hotel room somewhere, saying, I came back to the hotel room, I was really tired, and I sat down and I put on the television and it was a crime drama. I'd... I'm only ten minutes into it, and already they've done this, 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 this. <laughs> it's disgraceful. It's appalling. So you do. It's bad for it's bad, yeah. it's bad for your blood pressure. And I have. I mean, I must. Admit, I know enough about this now to have similar experiences. Often, um, we've got time for one one more question. There's a lady at the front here. Uh, I really, really like listening to. I particularly enjoyed your program on the life scientific, and I could listen to her hours. But you have great respect for the dead, but. Do you believe in an afterlife? Um, I have, as I've said before, I've never been spooked by the dead. And there's no point in believing in an afterlife, because when I get there, I'll find out. And so when I get there, either my grandmother will be waiting for me with an entire list of the things that I've done wrong in my life, which she will reel off, or what I, what I actually believe probably will happen is that having sat with my father, I sat with my father as he took his last breath on this planet. And it was, I think, the most humbling thing that a daughter could have done with her father. And when he took his last conscious breath, because there were several subconscious breaths afterwards that, you know, you, you do get the death rattle, which is just mucus forming within the lungs. When he took his last conscious breath, I knew at that point he had switched off and it was as if somebody switched a light switch on the wall. He was there one moment, he was not there the next. And what was left behind was a vehicle, it wasn't my father. So that I don't, I don't know where he went, if he went anywhere. I suspect there is nowhere to go. I don't remember the time before I was born. I'm not sure why I should remember the time after I'm dead. But, you know, I'm very happy to be wrong, because mm. I am frequently. Can I quote that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the first line on the next book. <laughs> so, thank you very much, Sue, um, so for, for all you shared with us this afternoon. This event does have an afterlife. Uh, <laughs> nice. And we, nice. We will be. See what, see what I did there? Yeah, I did, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we will We've got be. A future we will, in this. Yes, uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> we'll be making our way to the signing tent next door, where we will both be signing. Um, and so, if you could give us a chance to leave the room before you you come round to the signing room, that would be very helpful. But once again, thank you, Sue, oh, for this you're illumination. So you're so thank welcome. You. Thank you very much.
And thank you, thank you too to Linda. Thank you. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.